Hello and welcome to Punch a Hole in the Wind, a look at some of the great thoroughbred racehorses who have graced our racetracks all around the world over the last century or so. I'm Ollie Hine, and it's great of you to join me on this exciting trip down memory lane. My aim is to both remind you of some of your heroes from years gone by, but also to introduce you to some others whom you may not be so familiar with. The mid-1930s was something of a golden age of British thoroughbred champions, and Windsor Lad was right amongst them, helped into the limelight by his wonderful owner. It had happened before and would happen many times again. A horse is branded a great, the best since X, horse of the century, and then they lose fair and square. The excuses come tumbling out, yet as often as not, a simple fact is overlooked. They were beaten by an unheralded but truly exceptional horse. This is how Windsor Lad first really made his name, by accident. But by the end of his career, he was the one casting the shadow of greatness, not just over his own generation, but others too. By champion sire Blandford, out of Epsom Oaks runner-up Resplendent, genetics were certainly on Windsor Lad's side. This was noticed by trainer Marcus Marsh at the 1932 Newmarket Yearling Sales, scouting on behalf of one of his owners, the splendid and ambitious horse lover Maharan Vijay Singhji, Maharaja of Rajpipla. Ruler of the 4,000 square kilometre Rajpipla district near Bombay, many of the racing fraternity visited his huge estates, and Pip, as he was lovingly referred to, became a stalwart of the British racing scene. Indeed, it seemed at one stage that Pip was attending every single race meeting held in Britain. Such was his obsession both with the horses and with the high society folk he would likely befriend there. It was his lifelong dream to win the Epsom Derby, and he believed Windsor Lad, picked up for 1,300 guineas, would be the one who would finally present it to him. The horse was so named because Pip summered every year in the town of Windsor, deliberately keeping himself within spitting distance of British royalty, on the off chance that they might invite him into the castle for tea and biscuits. As a two-year-old, Windsor Lad seemed good, if not sensational, winning both his races well, whilst displaying some immaturity. But over the winter, he grew into a strong specimen, proving as much by annexing two recognised derby trials, in the Chester Vase and the Newmarket Stakes. But he crept in under the radar, as the only horse on anyone's lips for the previous 12 months had been a certain Columbo. He had won all seven of his juvenile races, easily topped the end-of-year English free handicap, and cemented this with workmanlike victories in the Craven Stakes and the 2,000 Guineas. The press, keen to create a hero during hard economic times, this was 1934 after all, had decided to latch on to him as the horse of the century, meaning that he started the Epsom Derby as a strong favourite, despite never having been tested over further than a mile. Pip and his team were not sucked into the madness, as they knew that their charge stayed well. As it turned out, the 1934 Epsom Derby delivered a controversy on a grand scale, in front of fully half a million racegoers and vast swathes of the royal family. And it all revolved around the styles and characters of several top jockeys. French-based Australian Ray Johnston was on Colombo. Well-fancied Easton had the inimitable Gordon Richards on board. Medieval Knight had Derby legend Steve Donoghue on top. Windsor Lad, meanwhile, 
was always partnered by Charlie Smirk. Smirk was as mercurial as they came and proud of his cockney roots. He had recently returned from a five-year ban for stopping a sure thing, a horse of ultimate inconsequence called Welcome Gift, from even starting a race at Gatwick Races. In fact, the poorly named horse refused to start at any of his subsequent races, backing up Smirk's claims that he'd done everything he could. The lofty, class-conscious authorities couldn't possibly be seen to apologise to a jockey from the East End of London, so they kept his ban in place and offered no compensation. His unplanned break saw him working as a beach hand in Brighton for pennies, leaving him essentially homeless and often sleeping on the beach. He therefore felt that he had much to prove. Nevertheless, coming down Tattenham Hill in that derby, the front-running medieval knight quickly slowed into Colombo. Johnston found himself trapped, but didn't call Steve Donoghue for room. Winsorlad and Easton got themselves into place far earlier, with Colombo joining the party late, with all three in a line, with a furlong to go. But then the unthinkable happened. Colombo slowed, and Winsorlad pulled easily away to win from Easton, equalling the race record set just the year before by the pocket rocket Hyperion. Johnston received a savage press, including from the cocksure Donahue, all conveniently ignoring the obvious fact, echoed by Johnston, that Colombo simply didn't stay. Some punters were happy, though, quoting a prophecy from the Romany fortune-teller Gypsy Lee, fully 50 years earlier, who had stated confidently, if rather nebulously, that a horse with a W in its name would win the 1934 derby. As cheers of good old Pip echoed around the downs, the king invited the hugely popular Maharaja to the royal box, toasting the first Indian-owned winner of the great race. Pip hosted a party the following night at the Savoy Hotel in London, and, true to his Indian roots, organised for an elephant to rise up from the floor, the mighty beast fully garlanded in Pip's purple and cream colours. It was not something that happened in London with alarming regularity, but then Pip wasn't your regular owner. In the eclipse stakes at Sandown a few weeks later, it was Smirk who came crashing down to earth. He rode a shocker, finding himself trapped against the rail, rallying too late to come home third to the patently inferior four-year-old King Salmon, whom he was three lengths clear of 50 metres past the post. A crestfallen Pip was convinced that Smirk was up to his old tricks and sacked him whilst also being unable to resist a £50,000 offer from bookmaker Martin Benson to buy the horse. Benson watched him train, immediately nicknamed him Lazy Bones, and decided to give Smirk another go. In his two subsequent races at three, he trotted up in the Great Yorkshire Stakes before demolishing the St. Ledger field, once again in a record time. By this stage, both public and experts were realising that he really was something special and perhaps conscious of the failed shooting attempt on Farlap in the build-up to the 1930 Melbourne Cup, Windsor Lad now travelled with a pair of bodyguards, referred to slightly less dramatically in the press as detectives. Either way, the only people not over the moon with his ledger success were the bookmakers, as Windsor Lad had won at 9-4 on and looked to be getting better with each race. So the precautions were perhaps understandable. The Americans, meanwhile, were also impressed, and after the trailblazing of Epinard in the 1920s, tried to organise races between their champion Cavalcade, leading French horse Admiral Drake, 
and Windsor Lad. But the logistics proved impossible. It was the norm at the time for champion three-year-olds to try to win the 20-furlong marathon of the Ascot Gold Cup at four. Benson, however, likely balked at the chance for his valuable colt to face up against France's own horse of the century at the time, Bordeaux, whose story is told previously. Instead, he took in the Coronation Cup back at Epsom, beating Easton very easily over the latter's preferred trip, and then won the Rouse Memorial at Royal Ascot over an inadequate seven and a half furlongs. He then tried his hand at the Eclipse for the second time. It proved to be his final race, and his bravest. In the home straight, with the race this time at his mercy, Windsor Lad suddenly fell lame, and ran the entire straight with essentially three functioning legs. He dug deeper than ever before, and incredibly beat top three-year-old theft by three-quarters of a length, leaving adults weeping on the track in face of such courage. Sadly, Windsor Lad never really had a chance to prove himself at stud, as sinus problems proved too debilitating, and he was eventually euthanised in 1943. Pip didn't forget him, though. At the height of World War II, he donated two Spitfires to the RAF, naming one Raj Pipla and the other Windsor Lad. The press were ecstatic, running the headline, Windsor Lad Will Fly. But for those who had seen his immense, understated abilities at Epsom, Ascot and Sandown, they believed that he already had. To find out more about Windsor Lad and other greats from the past, check out my book, Punch a Hole in the Wind, out now and available online and in bookshops. Next time, we'll go to a different part of the world and share the exploits of another great horse from another era who could punch a hole in the wind. But until then, this is Ollie Hine signing off and saying thank you for listening.